I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Please follow along. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that in your wisdom, you ordained that the Apostle Paul would be this missionary to the Gentiles, this apostle to the Greeks. I'm thankful, Lord, for this because in this ministry, in this evangelism to the nations, the gospel went outside of Jerusalem, it went outside of the context to the Gentile Christians, and as a result of that, the gospel spread not only in Asia and Ephesus and the surrounding areas, but eventually it came to us right now, and we have heard the gospel of our salvation and are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit if we have received this gift. So Father, this morning we come to you humbled by your grace and your mercy We know that each one of us are undeserving to receive anything from you. And yet that's what it means for you to be God. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The psalmist says, you will not always strive with us, nor will you keep your anger forever. You will not deal with us according to our sins, nor punish us according to our iniquities. And that is only because you punished our sin in Christ on the cross. And this is the mystery that the sacrifice of Jesus applies to Jew and Gentile. And because of Christ now, we can be brought near. We can have fellowship with you, with one another. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. So as we look to your word now, I ask that this would be a time of learning, time of encouragement, a time where our affections and love for Jesus are raised. Father, would you be pleased now in the preaching of your word, and I ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick up in verse 9 this morning, like I said, if you remember from last week, we paused over 7 and 8, so we're going to take this whole section under the heading of the display of God's wisdom. The display of God's wisdom. When we look at verses 9 through 13, I think that the main focus of these verses is in 9 and 10, and then when we get to 11 to 13, Paul's going to kind of supplement what he's already said, so we're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to come back to 
wrap up Paul's thought. You remember from a few weeks ago, he starts chapter 3 like he starts a prayer, but then he detours in verse 2, and everything from verse 2 to verse 12 is kind of a parenthesis statement, and he comes back and closes it in verse 13, and then carries on with his prayer from there. So keep that in mind as we look at these verses now this morning. So the first thing to notice in verse 9 is this word, and. Paul said earlier that the stewardship of the gospel, his entire ministry was a gift of God's grace. Remember earlier, this grace was given to me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And now, he is saying that it's not just to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, it's not just to give them these unsearchable riches that we talked about last week. He said it's also and to bring to light the mystery. So Paul preaches the gospel, he reveals the riches of Christ, and brings to light some of the implications of this gospel that he has been preaching. When he says, bring to light, you see that in verse 9, that's the same word he used in chapter 1 when he prayed for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, opened. When he says bring to light, he means he wants to reveal, he wants to shed light on. He's been commissioned to bring light or expose the gospel. This is similar to the word that we would use for exegetical preaching or expository preaching. It means to uncover the meaning. If I say I'm an expository preacher, I mean I want to expose what's in the text. And similarly here, when Paul says, I want to bring to light what this mystery is, he's saying, I'm telling you what this is. Pay attention. I'm going to reveal to you what this mystery is. And again, notice the inclusive language. Who is Paul bringing this message to light for? We see in verse 9, to bring to light for everyone. So Paul is still in this theme that he started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11, of including not only the Jewish people in the salvation, but also including the Gentiles, to bring to light for everyone. There is no ethnic separation anymore. There's no keeping somebody away because they don't have the right background or the right pedigree or the right credentials. The gospel message is for everyone. And not just in Paul's day, but in our day. We ought to remember this as we share the gospel, as you consider. I've done this, and this is to my shame, where you look at someone and you say, they're not going to believe it. Why waste my time? That is the most presumptuous thing you could ever think as a Christian. Because you know what? There was nothing in you that someone would assume, hey, they're going to get it. Paul says, I'm going to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Keep that in mind as we live our lives, as we go out of this building and engage in the community. Everyone needs the gospel. This is not just for a certain type of person. This is not for a particular group of people, but the gospel is for everyone. Now, Paul's not talking about his stewardship of the mystery, which he was talking about earlier, but now he's talking about the mystery itself. And he says, it is the plan of the mystery. Why include the word plan? What would be lost if Paul took the word plan out of that phrase? I think that both by using the word plan and by using this phrase, hidden for ages in God, Paul wants us to understand that the redemption 
of all peoples through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is not an afterthought by God. This was the plan. Every word in the Bible is significant. Let's just stop here just for a second. The sacrifice of Jesus was the plan of God the Father from all of time. God didn't create the world and say, man, this is really good. Look at this. It's perfect. We've got this garden. We've got these people. And like, oh, no, what is this sin? I had no idea this was coming. Well, I guess we've got to come up with a new plan. I mean, think and think and think and think. Oh, I know. I'll send my son. That'll do it. That is not the way God operates. The plan of Jesus was from before the foundation of the world, meaning that Jesus' sacrifice for you was not an afterthought by God the Father. We read the Bible and we see that the plan was in place before God even created the world. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Knowing, this is verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last times for your sake. Not an afterthought. Not a plan B. The plan went exactly as it should have. When we read plan of the mystery, we should see intentionality, purpose, design in what God does, which is the same thing when we look at any of God's works. Nothing God does is haphazard. Nothing he, I mean, from our perspective, stuff seems like It wasn't there, and then now it's there. That's not the way God works. It has always been in his mind. This is what it means for God to decree something. You know what it means when God decrees something? It means that that thing will come to pass. There is no chance of failure. There is no chance of it not happening. When God says a thing will happen, it will happen. So when God says, you are mine, you are his. And there's nothing that can change that. Job Perhaps said it best, this is Job 42, he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. None. And we should receive that as a great comfort to our hearts. Paul goes on now to say that the mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. What do you think Paul means when he says it was hidden? When we use the word hidden or hiding, it means you want to keep something away from somebody. As kids, when we play hide and seek, you're trying to not be found. You don't want to be discovered. You're hiding. Or some of you buy cookies and you hide them in your house because you don't want anyone else to eat them, which is a wicked practice and should be stopped immediately. (laughs) But that's that's what we think. When we think hide, we think, I want to keep it from somebody. So is that what what God is doing here? Did God make this unbelievable plan of salvation and a redemption through Jesus Christ and the inclusion of all peoples in this and say, I'm going to keep it right here. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to keep this. I'm not going to, is that that what's going on? Is God hiding his cookies from everybody? I think we need to go outside of Ephesians to get a little context. Paul uses this word in Colossians chapter 3. And I think this really helps in our understanding of what is going on in Ephesians 3. So listen 
or turn to Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does the word hidden mean in this context? Well, to say that our spiritual life is hidden in Christ is another way to say that we are kept secure. It's safe. Paul's saying that if we have been raised to newness of life with Jesus, then our spiritual life will be preserved or kept safe or hidden in God. Now come back to Ephesians chapter 3. Can we use the same usage of the word hidden in Ephesians chapter 3? When Paul says that the plan of the mystery was hidden for ages in God, I think we should interpret it the same way, and we could read that the plan of the mystery was preserved or kept safe in God until the time was right to be made known to the sons of men in other generations, like we talked about last week. There was never a time in redemptive history... All the way back to the beginning and all the way through to the end, there was never a time when the plan of God was in jeopardy. There was never a time when something happened in the universe that would potentially compromise the plan of salvation. Everything, the flood, oh no, the world's getting destroyed. The kings, they're failing at everything. All the way up through the crucifixion of the Son of God. It was not an accident. That was not a mistake. The plan was being kept safe in God. It was hidden in God. We make plans and we hope that they turn out. But really, we don't have the ability to make sure that the plan happens the way that we have, want it to happen, do we? We don't have that kind of control. We don't have that kind of power. God sovereignly plans, he decrees, and there is a 100% chance that his plan will come to pass. Do you know that? When God says a thing, it happens. There is no potential with God. There is no possibility with God. It simply is. That's what it means for him to be God. He is omniscient, meaning he knows everything, and he is omnipotent, meaning that he has all power. So when we combine those two attributes, we see that God in his wisdom, in his knowledge, makes this plan of redemption, and in his omnipotence, he has the power to ensure that the plan comes to pass in exactly the way that he has planned. And you know what? If God is able to exercise his omniscience, to exercise his power in keeping his plans. How should that affect our reading of Philippians 1.6? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Is there any wonder why Paul uses these words confidence and boldness later in the text? He's showing us that God can do anything and that he has been faithful to his word which should motivate us to trust, to trust our God. 
Now at the end of verse 9, Paul adds this phrase almost as an aside. He says, this mystery was hidden in God. Oh, and by the way, God created everything. He kind of just throws it in there. I think there's two things that we need to notice about that phrase, in God who created all things. First, I think Paul is reminding his readers, which includes us, the power and sovereignty of God that is demonstrated in keeping this promise. He is the creator God. He's driving home the point that this plan of redemption that was kept safe in God has now been revealed. And we know from other places in Scripture, like we read in 1 Peter a little bit ago, that this plan had always been in the mind of God, even when he created the world. Paul's driving us back there to convince us that God has the power and the authority and the wisdom to make his plan come to pass even in the creation of the world and through that whole process. Secondly, I think it's really interesting. Paul assumes that these people he's writing to already know that God is the creator. Do you see that? He doesn't develop that argument at all. He simply says, God created the world. He is assuming that they have been taught and discipled some of the basic truths of the Bible. He doesn't do that with election or redemption or atonement or future inheritance or the work of the Holy Spirit. But with this, he doesn't say anything. He assumes if they're in the church, they know that God created everything. So, When I thought about this, I thought, is that the way that we think about our discipleship? A lot of you meet with one another. You get together in one-on-one or in small groups. What are you doing in those times? Are we encouraging one another? Are we teaching one another the basics of the Bible? If someone came into your discipleship group and said, do you guys know that God created the world? This seems elementary, but you know what? It's not to everybody. And I think there's such a, such a call for us from Scripture not to neglect rehearsing the things that we already know. Nobody moves beyond this. Nobody moves beyond God created the world. It's a reality that we need to know. It's a reality that Paul assumes that they know, so I just want to encourage us, encourage myself That as I invest and I engage in discipleship, am I focusing my attention on communicating the truth of the Bible or am I focusing my attention on convincing somebody how much I know? That doesn't matter. What matters is are we teaching one another the word of God? That's what's going to last. Your wisdom, your knowledge, that's going to go. But the word of the Lord will last forever. So I think Paul, in kind of slipping this phrase in there, is giving us an admonition. Don't neglect the basics. Let's keep those at the center of what we do. Now let's move on to verse 10. As we continue to see this display of God's wisdom. Let's read verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why are we gathered here this morning, right now? Some of us do it because it's what we do on Sundays. 
But what is happening here? Not just at Grace Bible Church, but as all the churches in the church universal are gathered together, what is happening? You ever think about this kind of in a more broad perspective? Paul says in verse 10 that one of the purposes of the church, he's going to give us another one at the end of chapter 3, but for now, one of the purposes of the church is to display the wisdom of God in such a way that it is clearly evident to the rulers and authorities that God is all wise. We are to display the wisdom of God. So, two questions we need to ask. First of all, who are the rulers and authorities? And second of all, how... Does the church display this wisdom? What's the practicality behind displaying the wisdom of God? So first, to define the rulers and authorities, let's look at a couple other texts and see if it helps us in that. First, a little later in Ephesians in chapter 6, Paul's going to say this in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what happened when Christ did that? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. So, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against these rulers. And Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, disarmed these rulers and authorities. So, who are they? I think Ephesians 6, that phrase Paul used, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, sums it up pretty well. This is Satan, this is his demons, the prince of the power of the air, the ancient serpent called the devil. There is, according to the Bible, a realm, an unseen realm that the Bible calls the spiritual realm, where there is conflict, there is battle going, there is good and evil fighting We don't see that, but sometimes you feel it, and you know that it's there. We don't need to live in fear of these things. This is what I want to make really clear. Paul isn't informing us about this to have us live in terror. Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and he will stop at nothing to trip you up. And mark this, it's not always in the big ways. It's not always in the obvious outward sins. If he can simply get you to think a little better of yourself than somebody else, his foot's in. Be on guard. He is crafty and will sneak in at any opportunity he gets. But... Thanks be to God that in Christ, what did we just read in Colossians 2? Jesus triumphed over them in the cross and yanked their teeth out. There is no power ultimately to be had by Satan and his demons. Christ has overcome them in the cross. This is who the rulers and authorities are in Ephesians 3. 
Now, let's consider what it means for the church to display the manifold wisdom of God to them. When Paul says God's wisdom is manifold, he's saying that it's multifaceted, multidimensional. Did you guys ever know somebody that had one of those glass diamonds that hung from some fish line in their house? And, and it would kind of, my grandma had one, and maybe it's a grandma thing, but it would, it would kind of spin on that fish line, and when the sun hit it just right, it would reflect all these different kind of colors or kind of a rainbow, and you could kind of watch it go on the wall. That's similar, I think, to what Paul is talking about, that God's wisdom is not just seen in one way. We can look at anything God does, from the creation of the world to the creation of man, to his work in redemption, to his preserving work of his people. Anything God does, we should be able to see that God is wise, that he knows best, and that his purposes are good. So how does the church display this wisdom? This is a question. If, if we're called to the purpose of the church, display this wisdom, what does that mean? I think the answer could be seen in everything Paul has said, starting back in verse 11 of chapter 2. I mean, you could argue the whole book, but let's just go back to chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul starts in this reconciling work of Christ to bring people together. So using that as our context, let's work with that to start with. You see... Satan is a master of confusion and chaos and disorder. He loves strife and conflict. So, when the church, when we recognize the work that God has done in removing those barriers, in bringing people together, that normally the world would say, what in the world do you guys have in common? Jesus. And that's enough. So when the church practices this kind of unity, when we are reconciled, that is a way of displaying to the powers the wisdom of God. Because who comes up with a plan like that? Who determines to reconcile the most opposite people groups so that they would come together, worship Jesus, glorify God? That is a display of God's wisdom. Satan would love to see us eat ourselves alive from the inside by letting disagreement and unrest and difference of opinion just eat at us until we can't stand to sit next to someone in church. He would love that. But the wisdom of God is displayed when we, as a church, recognize that we have been reconciled to Christ, we have been united to Christ, and our commonality is in Jesus. Therefore, the fact that we are gathered together this morning is not an accident, but it is a billboard to the watching world that says we will not be taken because we are in Christ. Don't let these little things go. If you have something between someone else, deal with it. Don't give a foothold. The way that we display the wisdom of God as a church is to practice what we hear. (laughs) Don't be the James man, the man who looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets immediately what you've heard. Put these things into practice. And I'm talking primarily to myself. The wisdom of God is displayed to all the rulers in the heavenly places when we live in harmony with one another. Satan hates that.
there's a thing that we tend to do as believers, especially when we learn something new. Uh, some theological thing, some doctrinal thing, you read something, and you, you, we kind of tend to really emphasize, really lock onto that thing for a while. You know, when, um, pick, pick any issue. If, if we focus on these issues, whether it be, I mean, eschatology is a black hole, right? I mean, there are so many different ways of looking at when is Jesus coming and how is he coming and who's he coming for and when's he coming and what's going to happen and what do the 700 days mean and I don't even have any idea. You know what? Don't let that stuff divide you. Don't let it divide us. Christ is coming and he's going to judge the living and the dead and he will usher in a kingdom that will never end and we will live at peace with one another. So why shouldn't we try to live at peace now? Now, I'm not saying there's no distinctives. Don't hear me say this and say, well, it just doesn't matter. I mean, we can all get along. It doesn't really matter what you think of the Bible. No, of course. Of course it matters. But we can recognize when something's a primary issue and when something's a second or third level thing. And I just think that Paul, in his call for unity, and he's going to get into that now in chapter 4, is a call for us to lay aside our preferences, the things that we're so bent on, whether it be musical style or preaching style or I don't like the way we sit or I don't, whatever. Keep the main things the main things. That's what we need. And you know what? That's not just to keep the peace. I mean, as your pastor, I love it when we're at peace with one another. But that's not the main purpose. The main reason has to do with this text that when you and I practice this kind of unity in the church, it sends a message. Loud and clear. That we are not going to be distracted by those things. We are going to keep Christ at the center of what we do. That communicates something. Now, as I said, verses 11 to 13 end Paul's kind of parenthesis that he started in verse 2 and then bring us back to where he originally began in verse 1. So do you remember that at the start of the chapter, Paul kind of sounds like he's praying. He he actually starts his prayer in verse 14 in the exact same way. Paul says in verses 11 and 12 that the mystery being made known and the display of God's wisdom are according to the eternal purpose of God. We've already talked about this quite a bit. If you want to hear more on that, the sermons are on the website, so I'm not going to cover that in great detail right now. But Paul opened the chapter by telling these readers, the Ephesians, that he was a prisoner on their behalf. You remember that from a couple weeks ago? And now in verse 13, he comes back to that and tells them not to lose heart over what he is suffering for them. He's in jail because of the Gentiles, in a sense. Right? He's he's called to preach the gospel of the Gentiles, and in preaching, he gets in trouble. He gets put in jail. He doesn't want them to lose heart or be discouraged because of what he is going through. And then he says, what does he say there at the end of uh, the section? Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's an interesting thing to say. What does Paul mean that his suffering is their glory? I think the way that he says it in 2 Timothy 2, 10 gives us a really good understanding. This is what he says, 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul endures suffering because he is suffering for the gospel. There were people who looked at Paul's imprisonments and thought, well, he must be not paying his taxes or he must be jaywalking or whatever the case may be that he is doing something wrong. But no, Paul was in prison because of preaching the gospel. He was suffering for the gospel. And without the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, without them hearing the word of truth, as he said in chapter 1, there's no hope for eternal life for them because faith comes by hearing. We need to hear the gospel message to receive it as our own. And in doing so, we get this inheritance. You see how all of this is fitting together? I mean, we take little sections at a time, but we have to keep in mind that all of this fits together. The redemption, the inheritance, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, all of these things have to do with glory, with eternity. That's what Paul's doing. He's not just going around to plant more churches so he can check it off his list and say, I can add another one here. He wants people to know Jesus. He wants them to know the gospel and he wants them to be brought into what he tells Timothy, eternal glory. So when he says it is for their glory, I think he literally means future glorification that comes as a result of hearing the gospel. Remember what he said in chapter 1? This is, I just referred to this. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul's been commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and in doing so, he brings the message of hope and salvation and eternal glory to them. Next Sunday, we're going to start to look at Paul's prayer in verse 14. So I hope that you make plans to come back and join us as we continue this journey through the book of Ephesians. But for now, let's pray, and we'll have David come as we come to the table this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity this morning to see that when we live at peace with one another, it is not only for our benefit, it is not only for our reputation, but it is a display of your manifold wisdom. And so God, as we think about this church, as we think about Grace Bible Church and how we can best put this into practice, I pray that I would lead by example in humility, in gentleness, in patience, pray that my life would be an example and that all of the lives of these brothers and sisters would also be an example to one another, that we would emphasize and prioritize unity together as we minister the gospel to one another, as we leave this place and minister the gospel to those that you have put in our path. God, I pray that your word would have its full effect. Your word is powerful. It's clear. I'm so eager to put myself under it. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the strength that you give us. Thank you for all the goodness that is ours in Christ. Would we live our lives to his praise and his glory. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.